Well, good morning again, Crosspoint. Thank you so much for gathering this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into whatever space uh, you happen to be this morning, and thanks for inviting us into those spaces. If you're new to Crosspoint and we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie. It is my great honor and privilege to serve uh, here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint, and it's my uh, real honor and joy this morning to get to open up God's Word uh, with you and to start a brand new series uh, this morning. It's a series that's called uh, Formed, and the idea here is we're looking at practices of love for the life of the world, all right? And maybe a way to to think about this as we get into this particular series is to heed the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to a church in Colossae. um, So we have Colossians chapter one, and hear these words. This is the the, the goal, the Apostle Paul, like he cares deeply for this group of people. And he's like, I want you to be formed. I want you to be um, engaged. As he gets to chapter three of that book, he says to, to put on, and he begins to talk about the clothes that they would put on of like gentleness and humility and to be shaped more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And as he started out that letter, he says these words in Colossians chapter one, 28 to 29. He says, him we proclaim. And so he's proclaiming Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so in that, I think we see both the goal and attention that we're going to have throughout these eight weeks together as we journey through this particular series and we look at these ideas. Uh, The Apostle Paul here says that I might present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal for you, for me, that we would be growing in our maturity, in our walk with Christ, being shaped more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so Paul says, this is what I toil for. And he's talking about the reality that there is competing forces at work. It's a struggle. Like if you are somebody that's been a Christian, maybe probably for longer than a day, you know that, man, like there might be aspirations that you have about growing. Maybe there's even goals you set for 2020. Well, all those are out the window regardless, but right. I mean, we have these, these moments where we're like, oh, I want to do this and this, and I want to get closer to Jesus. And, and yet it's hard at times. And what I love that the apostle Paul does here is he doesn't He doesn't shy away from saying, like, there's this toil, like, nobody's outworking the Apostle Paul, and yet, look what he says. He says, the energy for that, he says, it actually doesn't come from me. He says that he powerfully works within me. And so as we get into this series and we talk about how we are formed in the image of Christ, there's sort of this both and, all right? It's not to just sit back and be passive, all right? Uh, And yet we have to realize it's God's energy, it's God's pursuit, it's God's spirit that forms us. And yes, there's this toil, but we need to make sure that we see that it is God's grace through and through. And so that's even what we're going to look at in more detail this morning. But as I said, there are these competing forces. Um, We're not neutral territory. I love the way C.S. Lewis in his great book, uh, Mere Christianity, talks about this. He says, every day you and I are being shaped not in sort of the monumental things of life, although that can be true, but just in the everyday, ordinary, the mundane. So not monumental, but mundane. And we have to pay attention. And part of this series is us going to be together as a church exploring those just sort of everyday, ordinary, mundane things. And how might God want to shape and form us in and through those? And not just for our own benefit, but for the love of other people, for the flourishing of our community, for the life of the world. So hear what C.S. Lewis says because he helps us sort of frame this as we get into this series this morning, as we get into the text uh, this morning, the idea that, hey, there is this toil, there is this work, and it can be a struggle at times. And so C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, 
the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creature and with itself. He continues, he says, to be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. And to be the other, it means madness and horror and idiocy and rage and impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And so Lewis is not denying that this is a tension. There's these competing forces. The reality is every single one of us, every moment of every day, there is a battle for our formation. And things can either form you into the image of Christ or they can deform you to take you away from who you were created to be. And this is not true just for those that would identify as Christians. This is the reality for all of us, all of the choices that we make. And so there's this invitation that we see to say, Lord, will you form me? Now, down through the centuries, down through church history, really, as throughout the Bibles, we, we will see in this series, there are certain practices, really, they're, they're gifts that the Lord has given to us so that we might enjoy the presence of God and we might be shaped and formed. Now, traditionally, these can be called spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, maybe liturgy or habits. There's a lot of different terminology that can be used. And my guess is, depending on how you're wired, Depending on perhaps some of your experience, maybe you grew up in certain environments, this can trigger all sorts of emotions and thoughts. And let me put a couple images. For some of you, I think when you hear spiritual disciplines, and I can definitely identify with this, what comes to mind, I think, at first might be this image, all right? You just see the person there kind of calling out for help, just like, I'm drowning. Like, I'm completely overwhelmed. Like, I started out, I had like good intentions and aspirations but it just starts to, starts to get overwhelming and you're like, man, you know, I, I got through the first couple books of the Bible and then I ended up in Leviticus. I didn't know what was going on or I said I was gonna pray every day. I'm committing you know, 30 minutes of prayer and then it was down to 15 and then I'm just like, I don't know, I can't focus. Maybe I can give three minutes and then it's 30 seconds and eventually it's just like, I don't even know. Like maybe I'll pray at, at some point. I mean, we can start to be overwhelmed and just sort of feel like we're drowning in this. And so maybe for you, that's what comes to mind. You're like, oh, spiritual disciplines, tried there, been there, done that didn't really work for me, or maybe because of your church background and upbringing, it feels like just more guilt and shame that's being heaped upon you. Like there's the really good Christians, right? They're varsity, and you're just struggling to be on the JV team as far as spiritual disciplines go. And I don't think that's how we're meant to see it. On the other hand, what can sometimes happen? I'll put another image here. Uh, one writer, um, a guy by the name of Kyle David Bennett, in his book, Practices of Love, which is, will be a helpful book in this series, we'll commend it to you. He speaks of this. He says, sometimes there's such a drive for it. He speaks of, he's like, here's kind of what we're going for. So maybe here's the other image. It's just like this mountaintop, this emotional high, this spiritual high. And he says, if we're not careful, we can begin to view spiritual disciplines. He says in his opening chapter is entitled spiritual heroin. All right. So kind of an odd way to think about it, but he's like, we can begin to view these things. If I just get a little hit of that, a little dose of that, like it's going to take me to the mountaintops. I'm going to soar. I'm going to be super close to Jesus. Everything is going to be amazing. But the problem with that, there's a lot of different problems with that. Sometimes that's not our, our reality. 
And even if we get a taste of that, oftentimes we can turn those great gifts of the Lord into very self-centered things. Like they're not meant to terminate on themselves. Like, oh, suddenly you feel close to Jesus and now you're good. In fact, in that chapter, he lays out three things. He says, what this oftentimes is, I'll put the image back up here, is individualism, intellectualism, and instrumentalism, all right? You know I like this book because there's alliteration. And so in this, he says, it can really focus just on the individual. And then it oftentimes is really focused, particularly in our culture and our day, about just gathering in more information. All right, we are information junkies. If I could just get more information. I mean, even think in the moment we're living in right now, how many of us are constantly trying to like Google and look up things thinking, maybe if we get more information about this pandemic, like suddenly we'll unlock it or we'll solve it. And so we, there's this constant pursuit. Knowledge is not bad. Using your mind is not bad. We're gonna look at that in a couple of weeks. But there can be this hyper-individualism. Related to that can be just focusing on the intellectual. And what we do is we take these instruments and we use those, kind of manipulate those to just get what we want. We want that spiritual high. The Lord is inviting us into something much, much better, not only for you, but the flourishing of our community. And so throughout this series, right, we're going to get to our text here in just a moment, but I want to put this definition uh, before you. A guy named Robert Mulholland wrote a book called Invitation to a Journey, and here is his short summary of spiritual formation. All right, so if I had to kind of summarize, like, hey, what is it that we're trying to pursue together through this series, but in the life of the church? He says this. He says, spiritual formation is a process. So hear that. It's not instantaneous. It's a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. One more time. Spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's what we want to see. Practices of love for the life of the world. Each week we're going to look at, after this week is for the introduction, all right, this week is that, and then we'll look at a different spiritual practice, a different spiritual discipline, a habit, really to see these are gifts that the Lord has given to us so that we might be formed, but also as we engage in these, all right, it's actually meant to help us do what Jesus called us to do, to love God and to love our neighbor. Like he boils it all down to that. And so often I confess, like I think of spiritual disciplines and habits and practices solely on like what it does for me. And even this sort of like, do I measure up? Am I doing enough? Well, I'm a pastor. I better make sure I've got these things in order. And I don't see them through the lens of how might my engagement in this lead me to love people more faithfully, to love them as Christ would love them. But that's what true spiritual formation actually is. And so what I wanted to do this morning is to say, okay, we're starting this journey together. And throughout church history, again, as people talk about this journey, this journey of being a disciple, the very first phase, sort of the first stage that we need to be thinking about is this awakening. Kind of the first leg of the journey is us seeing like who God is and his majesty and his glory and his grace and also seeing our great need for him. And so this morning is really the start of the journey. It's looking at a passage that's gonna help us deal with this reality. We need to be awakened. So before we can talk about spiritual disciplines, some of you are like, hey, just tell me what to do. And I wanna just jump to that. We need to see what the Lord has for us, particularly in this text. We're gonna go all the way back near the very beginning. We're gonna go to the book of Genesis, all right? So if you got a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 28. We're gonna look at verses 10 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, go to cpwp.life 
swipe over till you see a card that says message notes. And there you will find any of the information that's on the slides, including the text. Now, this may not be where you would think we would start about spiritual disciplines. We're going to be looking at this ancient story of a man named Jacob, right? You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let me read this, and then I'll kind of unpack a bit. Kind of, if you're familiar with it, you might, you know, you might like, oh yeah, I kind of know this story. Some of you might, like, I don't remember this at all. Maybe you heard it at one point. I'll give us some context so this makes sense. But let's look at this. This is a story of awakening. It's the story that helps us see, this ancient story that helps us see who God is and our great need for him. Genesis 28, we'll pick up the story in verse 10. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Church, I wanna invite you right now. We need to hear, we need to hear from the Lord. You don't need to hear from, from me or my thoughts or my opinions. We need to allow the spirit to teach us, to instruct us through his word that is living and active. And so as I put this slide up, this is a short prayer. Pray this with me now. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. So as we look at this story, this story resonates so much because this is a story that I can relate to. And I believe if you kind of see it through this lens, you'll be like, oh, it's something that I think you'll be able to relate to as well. Because where we find Jacob, what has preceded this is he had a brother. He has a brother in the, this story named Esau, Jacob and Esau, all right? And they're, they're twins and, and they're these brothers. And here's the, here's the reality. There was this promise that was made that Jacob, as the younger, would one day actually kind of rule over the older one. But Jacob, all right, all the time takes matters in his own hands. He's very deceitful and deceptive. I mean, early on in the, the story, like he sort of tricks his, his brother into selling his, his birthright. And then 
as his father is aging, who he can't see very well, the father wants to bless Esau, to pass the blessing on, all right? And Jacob comes up with this plan with his mom to trick and to deceive his father. Like you gotta have a whole level of corruption to be able to go to your old dad who can hardly see anything and like put animal skin like on your arm so you can mimic your older brother who's a bit hairier than you are and cook this meal and trick your dad, all right, into blessing you instead of your brother. But that's what takes place, all right? And if you can imagine, right, Esau, he is furious. He's like, what in the world? I'm gonna kill that brother. And so he's like, listen, I'm not gonna do it while dad's still here on the earth, right? We're, We're nearing the days of mourning for him. He didn't have much time left, but as soon as the old man is gone, I'm coming after you. And so, Jacob's mom, she gets word of this and she warns him, says, hey, you need to flee. And so this is where we pick up the story. Like Jacob is not a good dude, right? Jacob has broken all kinds of commandments. He's been a terrible brother. He's tricking his father while he's on his deathbed. All right, he's deceptive and he's on the run. Now, what we see here in 10 to 11, this is what I think is so key, is there's this this, this darkness that has come upon him. All right, the author of this, the writer of these words is helping us to see this. So look back with me at verses 10 to 11. So he leaves his home, goes towards Haran. He came to a certain place. Now at this point, it doesn't even tell us the name, just, just a certain place. And then it tells us he stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. So look at the details real quickly. He's in a no-name place out in the middle of nowhere. He's on the run. He's got, there's no comfort, right? The dude's using a rock or a stone for a pillow. Like, you know you're in bad shape when you don't even have anything that you can kind of fold up, no blanket, no, you know, shirt, jacket or anything, and use that. He uses a stone. And then the writer tells us the sun is setting. So you picture that scene, right? He's on the run. He's fleeing for his life. And not only is there a spiritual darkness that he's feeling, and that we're becoming aware of, even as we see who he is in this story, we realize, man, I mean, there's, a, there's this darkness, like physically as the sun is setting, kind of closing on that particular scene. He is isolated. He is alone. He's used his trickery and deception to get what he wanted, but look what it's leading to. And so here he is, a man on the run. No, he's in a no-name place, no comfort, no light. I mean, it's like a bad country song at this point. Like, this is the life that he's living. But the story doesn't stop there. What ends up happening, all right, is he actually somehow, you know, he's able to fall asleep. He's got the, the rock for the pillow, and he enters into this slumber that the Lord grants him sleep. And not only that, there's a dream that the Lord brings to him. Now look with me again at verses 12 to 17. We see the dream and we see this descending. We see God coming toward Jacob. So verse 12 says, he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder. Now it's helpful to realize, yes, ladder, that might be one way to translate it, but there's usually a note in your Bible there that will also say it might be more helpful. I believe this is more accurate to think of it really as this staircase, right? Or a staircase where there's room for multiple people as we see in this particular account for the angels. And so it says, behold, there was this ladder. There's a stairway set up on the earth. The top of it reached to the heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And then he begins to go into these promises, which we'll look at more in just a moment. 
but just look at some of these details for a moment, right? You got the stairway, all right? You've got this ladder, this particular stairway. So we've got stairway, angels, the Lord, and promises. So let's unpack those for just a moment. The stairway is literally connecting heaven and earth, all right? Like the sky has been split open. Here is this stairway, and on it are the angels, which are the messengers of the Lord. It's this picture of God's power that is going forth from the heavens out into the world, and then we're introduced to not only the angels, as spectacular as that would have been for Jacob to see that in his dream, it tells us that the Lord himself shows up. Now, as you read this, what's really interesting, verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. But there's a lot of debate about like how that should be translated. It's kind of ambiguous. Like, what does it actually mean? Like stood above it? Like, is he at the top of the stairway? But I believe what is being communicated here and lots of different commentators and theologians down through the years have said what seems to be more accurate is not that he's standing above, but actually, or standing above like at the top of the stairwell, but rather the Lord has condescended, who has descended down to Jacob and is standing above him or next to him. Like that's more of the language. So rather than up high and distant, he has come down and he has gotten near this man, this one who is on the run, who has tricked his brother, who has tricked his, his father, who has cheated people, who is fleeing for his life, deceitful, wicked Jacob. The Lord comes down and then the Lord begins to make promises. I mean, how crazy is this? Is the least expected thing ever. The guy who's done it all wrong is getting all of these promises spoken over him. Now, if you're wondering, like, what does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? We'll get there in a moment. But we have to see the Lord's posture and the Lord's movement. And so look at the promises. He says, behold, or he comes down, all right, and he says, as he's standing near him or over him, he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. He's identifying, like, you're part of this family, and I've been Lord of that family. I called Abraham. I called Isaac. And what he's doing here is like, I'm calling you, Jacob. The land on which you lie, he says, I will give to you that promise. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. It's this picture of like multiplication and dominion, like the, the tribe of Jacob, like Jacob's people are going to spread everywhere. They're going to be numerous. They're going to be powerful. They're going to have the Lord's blessing. And then all the families, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as we look at this again in this series, all right, practice of love for what? For the life of the world, that we might love people. We might love our neighbor. That has been God's intent from the very beginning. He doesn't call the people to be like, okay, cool, you and me, we're, we're good. But rather, like when he called Abraham, the word to Isaac, the word to Jacob, the word throughout all the scriptures, I am blessing you so that you in turn might be a blessing. And so when the Lord gives us good gifts to enjoy his presence, they're not meant just for you, but they're meant as a means so that you and I might actually love our neighbor. If there was ever an opportunity to love our neighbor, where the world is hurting, where the world is coming awake to its own brokenness and need, the time is now. So what would it look like for us to lean into this story? But so there's these promises. And then he says, verse 15, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. When you're on the run, when you're dealing with uncertainty, all right, it's a promise that is spoken. It's a promise that's spoken to us that are in Christ. The Lord is with us. The Lord will not forsake us. He will not leave any behind. He will go after the lost sheep. 
all that had been given to the Father, by the Father to him, he will claim, he will protect, he will keep them wherever you go. And he says, I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you. My presence will be with you until I have done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and you get this response that we'll look at in more detail in a moment. This is mind-boggling. I love the way Tim Keller in a sermon on this years ago commented on what is happening. He says this, Jacob has not asked for God. He hasn't called out to God. He hasn't repented. And God comes right to him unsought and stands right over him. God is not standing at the top of the ladder saying, Jacob, approach. And Jacob is coming up like this, what, Lord? No, God comes down with all holiness and majesty, unasked for, stands right over him like a father or a mother stands over a sleeping child and says words of love and assurance. They are absolutely unconditional. Isn't this astounding? I mean, if we just take this story kind of face value. It's like, this makes no sense at all. Like, isn't it the, the good people that are supposed to get the presence of God? Like, Jacob doesn't deserve this. Jacob deserves condemnation, right? So this stairway to heaven, it should have been like this opening at the gates of hell. I mean, that's the reality of it. So we have to ask ourselves, like, how, how can any of this be? Like, what actually is taking place here? And there's some clues, there's some keys in this text. In fact, there's this phrase that is used here. All right, look at Jacob's response. As he wakes up, or he wakes from his sleep, he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Talking about the presence of God. And he says, this is the gate of heaven. Like this is the portal, this is the access place to heaven, to the presence of God. This is what we're created for. So, how in the world is all of this taking place? Now, what's so fascinating and interesting that commentators have observed in this is if you're studying through the book of Genesis, you would see this phrase, the gate of heaven. That term, that idea would show up actually already in the book of Genesis. In fact, if you were to flip back a few pages, you would go back to Genesis chapter 11 and you would read a story that perhaps you're familiar with that is referred to as the Tower of Babel. And the most fascinating thing here is that Babel, the idea there is they constructed this tower, all right? The idea behind that word and how it can be translated or understood to the ancient people back then was that Babel, it was the gate of heaven. Interesting. So what was it that was happening in Genesis 11 that informs some of what's being used here in Genesis 28 that ultimately we need to jump to the New Testament to actually help us make sense of? Well, let's think for just a moment what was happening at the Tower of Babel. They were trying to construct this tower up to the heavens. They were literally trying to connect there. Now, what most people believe is that as you go and you, if you were to journey through that part of the world, the Tower of Babel would have been constructed like this pyramid or this ziggurat, all right? Here's like a picture of some ruins from, from one that part of it still stands. Some of it has collapsed there. And as you can see, kind of on the, the front of that, the facade there, there's this large stone steps, this, this large stairway. And so what would have been commonplace is these would have been built brick by brick by brick, layer upon layer, level upon level, upwards toward the sky, they were built as temples to the gods. 
And the calling for the people was if you wanted to get in the good graces, the favor of the gods, to be able to enjoy the gods' blessing, you must climb the stairs step after step after step, level after level after level, until you could finally reach the top and there would be the priest and there would be the altar and you would bring offerings and sacrifices to be made in hopes that you could appease the God, in hopes that the God might bless you. The journey was always up. That's what's taking place. And so Babel is that attempt. Again, let's get to the gods. Let's get there. Every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, all right, if you want to boil it down, I'm oversimplifying here, but literally everything out there, all right, that's not the gospel, that's not Christianity, is climbing the steps of the temple, trying to get to the heavenly realm, to the presence of God, trying to do enough so that you might be a peace. It's Islam, it's Buddhism, it's karma, it's you fill in the blank. It's all of that. And it's exhausting, it's step by step. And you're just hoping that this might work out. And then what we get here in Genesis 28 is something different. The gate of heaven is spoken of, and it's not like Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. It's not like these ancient temples where you've got to try and ascend. What do we have here happening? Jacob wakes up and he says, the gate of heaven. And what has come through that gate, what has come down those steps, is not Jacob going up to God. It's God coming down to him, and he's over him, and he's next to him. And not only that, he's not just next to him to kill him, he's next to him to speak words of promise and of blessing and of assurance. This is mind-blowing. Like this would have been so unheard of. Nobody does that. The gates of heaven are about us trying to get up to God. And that story continues to play out. And church, let me put before you, as we talk each week about spiritual disciplines, the default of the human heart is gonna want to say, I did this, I read my Bible, and I prayed, and I fasted, or I served, or I gave, or how we, all these different things we're gonna look at. The tendency is gonna say, I climbed the step a little more. I got a little closer. God must love me more. Now, we might even know intellectually, that's terrible theology, but the disposition of our heart, we're going to want to get full of ourselves. We're going to begin to look down the people. Oh, you're, you're back there on those, just that first level on those steps. Try and get to my level. There's something in the human heart that thinks we can rise up, that we can do it, and we can't. The gate of heaven, it's about God coming down. Now, I told you, you got to go Genesis 11. You got to go backwards to understand this. But by God's grace, we also can look ahead and so there's this amazing account in John chapter one, the very beginning, Jesus is going and he's calling his disciples and there's this interaction. There's this man, Nathaniel, right? And his buddy has just run up to him. It's like, I think there's the Messiah, right? So his buddy run, runs up to him and Nathaniel's kind of like a little snarky. He's like, ah, Nazareth, like nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. He's not gonna believe it, right? But he gets this introduction to Jesus. Now look what happens here. John chapter one, verses 47 to 51. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So it's a fascinating account, right? Fascinating interaction. And yeah, if I, some complete stranger told me like what I was doing earlier in the day, like I'd be like kind of dumbfounded, right? So Nathaniel's having one of those moments. 
But that's not the crazy part. Jesus is sort of warming him up, just like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're going to see greater things than these. And then he begins to speak. And Jesus speaks words here to Nathaniel that are how we are to actually interpret and understand more fully the gate of heaven and what was going on in Genesis 28 and how God works, how things work in the kingdom of God. And he continued, and he said to him, truly, truly, which when the scriptures, when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's this emphasis, like pay attention. I say to you, you will see. So he thought the fig tree was amazing. He's like, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Son of Man was Jesus' most favorite way to talk about himself. One might expect here for Jesus to say, oh, you want to talk about heaven? You want to talk about the presence of God? You will see the angels of God ascending and descending to the Son of Man. That's the way our mind works. That's the way every religion works. That's, that's, that's gate of heaven, tower of Babel kind of thinking. Oh, God is up there. The Son of Man is up there. What must I do? I'll do these spiritual disciplines. I'll do these practices. I'll, I'll love people as well as I can so that maybe I can tip things in you know, the balance kind of toward me. Let me get to the Son of Man. But do you notice that's not what it says? It's not to the Son of Man. It's on the Son of Man. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's happening here in John chapter 1 is a reference back all the way to Genesis 28. And what is being communicated is that Jesus is the one. He is the way. He is the access to the presence of God. We walk on him. He has paved the way. He has created the path. He is the one on which we walk. He is the stairway. He is the gateway to heaven. He is the gateway to the grace of God, it is all Jesus. And so when we look at Jacob, who's isolated alone in the darkness, Jesus dealt with our isolation and our anxiety and our fear and our shame and our sinfulness and our rebellion and everything that we deserved. Like that darkness, Jesus took it upon himself. As the sky grew dark there on that afternoon, there on the cross, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening there is Jesus is becoming the one on which we can access the presence of God. He is that new temple. He is that stairway. He is all of those things. We are on the Son of Man. He is our only hope. He is what sustains us. Not your good works, not your effort, not how many times you read the Bible in a year or over the years or how faithful you are in these things. As good as those things can be, we have to see as we get into this series further, don't miss this. It's all about God and his radical pursuit of us. And then Jacob wakes up and I love this. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. What's he communicating? I've just experienced the presence of God. He's not in any place that's beautiful or elaborate or anything. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't have any provision. He just slept using a rock as a pillow. His family wants to kill him. His brother is after him. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He doesn't deserve anything. And he's like, the Lord came and visited me. I find this incredibly encouraging because if God's pursuit is of the Jacobs of the world, then God is continually after you and he's after me and he's inviting us in to enjoy the presence of God. This is what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And so he says, the Lord is in this place. 
It's average, it's ordinary. There's nothing special about it. What we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks is the average ordinary things where we too might have our eyes open to say, oh my goodness, surely the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in your home in the midst of all this chaos right now. The Lord is around, he's with you at the dinner table. He's with you. The Lord is in this place as you go about your work. The Lord is in this place as you're trying to figure out maybe if you've got kids, like what to do for school, right? The Lord is in the mundane and the details. Every single thing that occupies your mind, your heart, your attention, there's an opportunity to meet the Lord and in doing so to actually love our neighbor. Let me read this quote. We're almost finished here. Kyle David Bennett in his book, Praxis of Love, he says this. This is what we're going to be exploring together. The Christian life is not a life dripping with personal satisfaction or one of basking and feeling positive. It isn't a life baptized in stimulation or excitement. It definitely isn't a life of consecutive highs and fixes. Rather, it is a life of reconciliation, restoration, and renewal. It is a life of loving our neighbor as ourselves. He continues, he says, it is a life of doing everyday activities such as owning, thinking, eating, socializing, talking, working, and resting in ways that demonstrate love of others and bring life to the world. And as we will come to see, this is precisely the life we live by, in, and through spiritual disciplines. These seemingly random and strange practices are actually sanctified and renewed ways of doing everyday activities. My prayer for us as a church throughout this series is that we might exclaim over and over again, the Lord was in this place, in my owning, in my eating, in my socializing, in my resting, and how he might use that awareness to allow us to love and serve other people. We'll close with this. Look at these last few verses. There's this seeming dedication or this decision that is made by Jacob in 18 to 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow. And this is fascinating here. Look at the next word. If, if God, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, if then, then the Lord shall be my God. This is conditional. And this stone which I've set up for pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It's conditional. And what I love as this story concludes is it's not the end of the story for Jacob. And so in this I, I want to close with just reminding us, as the scriptures do, we don't always get it. I mean, Jacob has just encountered the presence of God. God stooped down, condescended to his level, spoke these words over him. And yet he's like, all right, well, God, if you prove to be faithful, you know, I'll give it some time, kind of see how things go. If, well, then I'll do this. And yeah, then I'll respond. I'll be, I'll be generous. I'll give a tenth. I'll tithe this. I'll do so-and-so in this sorts of things, right? It's conditional, he doesn't get it. His heart has not been gripped by the grace of God yet, or not fully. And the reality of the situation for me is my heart needs a continual like renewal and awakening to who God is and my great need for him. 
And the God that we serve is the God that continues to descend toward us, that descended in the life of Jesus and who is by his grace now given his spirit, who has taken up residence in us to remind us of the gospel. And so church, be encouraged in this. We are gonna stumble, we're gonna fail. Sometimes in this, we're gonna feel like, man, formation, like I'm just sort of like, you know, I'm failing all over the place. I'm, it's this crawl, it's, it's not as going as well or as quickly as I would like, but know this. Hear again the promises of God. The apostle Paul writing to another church says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The dedication you have to spiritual disciplines, the dedication you have to spiritual practice, the dedication that you have to loving other people and to loving God, it will waver, we will fail, we will not do that perfectly. But rest in this, the one who said, on the Son of Man has made it possible for us to have his righteousness that that is the gift that we've been given. And now everything that we do, it is not to earn, it is not to walk the steps, it is not to try and somehow earn or attain. Everything has been attained and given to us. And yet, in this time, in this tension, in this place where we're not fully yet in the presence of God, we will stumble and we will fail. And the calling isn't to beat ourselves up and the calling isn't to say, oh my goodness, I need to be a better Christian. I think I should have been further along at this point, but rather to go back and say, I might not have been as dedicated to the Lord as I would like, but the Lord is completely dedicated and committed to me. I have to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb to know how much he loves me, cares for me, pursues me, speaks promises over me. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jacob's story wasn't over, and God would use him in tremendous ways as a broken, sinful man who became aware and rested in the grace of God. May it be true for us, church, that we would rest, that we would know God's commitment and dedication toward us. And may we enjoy these disciplines as a means by which we can love other people, knowing that we're already loved faithfully, perfectly in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you are the the son of man on whom the, the angels ascend and descend. Thank you that you are this gateway of grace that we might actually enjoy the presence of God with which we were created for. And so God, help us in this series. I pray that that there would be toil and striving in the best possible sense, not to earn your affection. We already have that. But there'd be this grace-fueled effort where we would seek to engage in these practices, to fight against the distraction, the noise. We might actually enjoy your presence. These practices of love where we might actually come to know more fully and profoundly the love that you have for us. God, we can't hear that message enough that we are loved by you. And our world can't hear it enough too, God, that you love them. And we have the opportunity to love a world that is desperate for love and affection and for assurance. And so help us, God, in these weeks and these months ahead that you, God, we just ask that you might shape us more and more into the image of Christ, the process of being made more like you, Jesus, for the sake of other people. Help us in that. God, we pray that you would get your glory through that and that we would experience a great joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship.